Welcome to the commentary track for the year 2000 extended edition uh, home video release of Superman the movie. So this is the one redone in the year 2000. It's a little bit tougher to come by than the theatrical edition. The theatrical edition is available in all the deluxe box sets. It's available in the individual releases. It's also available in the four family favorite Superman 1, 2, 3, and 4 $10 DVD set. The extended edition is also available individually and in the box sets. It's not available in the deep discount versions. So this one is a little bit tougher to come by, but it was chosen for a couple of reasons. One is that it's the version I prefer. The other one is that the uh, theatrical release already has an excellent fan commentary that was provided by the guys of the Aya podcast. So that's John Suntris of Word Balloon, as well as Art Baltazar and Franco Rigliani, who do a lot of DC's young readers line, or family-friendly lines, including Superman Family Adventures. Uh, if you pick up Superman Family Adventures issue 8, you'll actually see them take Superman in a direction he's never gone in before. That makes complete and total sense. In any event, the trickiest thing that we're going to have to do here is get everything lined up so that this works as a commentary track. So I'm watching it off the Blu-ray edition that doesn't change the runtime on any of them. This is the 1 hour, 31 minute, 20... No, this is the 2 hour, 31 minute, 25 second edition. We're going to get it synced up right at the end of the Warner Brothers logo. The best time, I think, to sync it up, that's clearest for both myself and for the listeners is at the end of the Warner Brothers logo, and this is the old Warner Brothers logo, the white on black, not the shield. We see that logo come in from behind, it pauses for a moment, and then the Warner Brothers distribution credit appears. I'm going to get my copy running now. I'm going to pause it between when that logo zooms to the forefront before the words appear underneath. I'm going to declare the timestamp, and then I'm going to do a countdown so that we can get everything synced up to go together. So I've got mine started, the Warner Brothers logo zooms forward, and I've got it paused. So the Warner Brothers logo is up, the counter is at the 5 second mark, and I'm going to do a countdown so that we can get everything synced up and we can unpause our player simultaneously so we can keep going at this together. So if you don't have your copy loaded yet, pause the podcast till you have it loaded and get it ready to go to the 5 second mark. Okay. 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, play. And the Warner logo just faded away. Picture is dedicated with love and respect to Jeffrey Unsworth OBE. He was the cinematographer on this film and a number of others. We've got the curtains. And this is filmed in black and white. The curtains open. And in the background we see the old 4x3 screens, June 1938. 
1938 is when Superman first appeared in Action Comics number one. The comic we're looking at now is not the actual Action Comics number one, it's a mock-up. And it actually changes quite dramatically. As we mentioned in the first podcast, when Action Comics number one came out, Superman was working for the Daily Star, not the Daily Planet. The editor was uh, George Taylor, uh, not Perry White. So we're zooming in on the Daily Planet, which is bringing us out of the fantasy world of the movie and starting to give us some context, some of the real world. We see the Daily Planet logo spinning. And this is where we start to literally jump right off the comic page and into the real world. We're panning past the moon. And then we get the excellent opening credits. Alexander Salkine's credit jumps off the screen first. Now Marlon Brando gets top billing because he was easily the biggest star in the film at the time, followed by fellow Academy Award winner Gene Hackman. Now Richard Donner was coming in just off directing The Omen, but he does get the directorial credit next. The WGA rules and the Directors Guild of America rules have changed the order of them. Now we have that Superman logo and that amazing John Williams score. And here... Superman as you're going through with the hollow credits Christopher Reeve finally gets third billing from the stars as Superman or, and Clark Kent next up is Ned Beatty as Otis Jackie Cooper was a last minute replacement for Keenan Wynn as Perry White Glenn Ford as Jonathan Kent, who's also in Blackboard Jungle. We'll come back to that. Trevor Howard is the first elder on Krypton. Margot Kidder is Lois Lane through all the Chris Reeve films. Jack O'Halloran plays Non. He'll be a much bigger part of the second film. Valerie Perrin is Eve Tessmacher. Maria Schell is Londa, a Kryptonian scientist. And Terrence Stamp. Sorry, not Londa, Lanva. Terrence Stamp was Zod, of course. Phyllis Thaxter, Ilya Salkine's mother-in-law, plays Martha Kent. Susanna York plays Lara Lorvan, Superman's mother. Jeff East is teenage Superman, Mark McClure, is Jimmy Olsen. Sarah Douglas and Harry Andrews are Ursa and the Second Elder. Incidentally, Mark McClure has appeared in more Superman films than Chris Reeve. Production designer John Barry was hired after his work on Star Wars. He was the one that created the sets and the scenarios. Jeffrey Unsworth, as we said, was a cinematographer with a phenomenal track record who passed away before this actually was released. Editor Stuart Baird went on to edit X-Men. He edited um, Green Lantern, also directed Star Trek Nemesis. John Williams may be a bigger part of the Superman legacy in the modern consciousness than anyone except possibly Chris Reeve. And Jerry Siegel and Joe Shuster created the comic character 75 years prior to this. 
Now Mario Puzo was hired for 600000 coming off The Godfather with a monstrous strip that had to be pared down. So the first screenplay was done by Puzo and David Newman. David's wife Leslie was brought in to work on Lois Lane's dialogue, and Robert Benton also did some work on it. But Tom Mankiewicz was brought in for a page one rewrite. He's only credited as creative consultant because he wasn't paying Writers Guild of America dues, and the others were. Charles Greenlaw is the associate producer. Now, Ilya Salkind is the son of Alexander Salkind. He's the one that brought the project to his father's attention, and that's why they acquired the rights. Pierre Spangler worked with them on the three and four Musketeer movies prior to this with director Richard Lester. And here's director Richard Donner, who was brought in when Spielberg asked for too much money and based on the strength of the omen. Now we're coming in on Rao, the red son of Krypton, which has since been given a specific matchup, at least in the comics world, in DC's New 52, by Neil deGrasse Tyson. His choice is not consistent with the way it's depicted in the 1978 Superman, but it does make a lot of the science make far more sense. And now we have Krypton, which is all blue. There's no water to speak of, so it is not just another Earth. It's a very different world. And we zoom in on the Kryptonian surface, and we see their cities and their structures are built out of crystals. And this is on a, a model set filmed in Shepperton Studios in London. So and we're panning over the Kryptonian architecture towards the dome. Now this scene sets up a few things. One is that it sets up Jarrell, and it also sets up a lot for the sequel, because this was designed as a saga. Mario Puzo's original script was apparently for a trilogy that, if filmed as is, would have taken up more screen time than Lord of the Rings. We get Jarrell talking about how this is no wild fantasy, bringing it in, saying, yeah, this is not a fictional world, this is real. And they're very much trying to ground the film. And he continues in the classic style with the Superman spit curl that jacked up his price by another million dollars. Yeah, he was eventually paid 14 million, paid 12 up front plus a share of the profits. The 12 up front was a renegotiation because he didn't want to do this bit curl, so they paid him more to do it. And I say eventually 14 million, he ended up suing the Salkinds, as did Mario Puzo and a few others. Now we get an introduction of the three Kryptonian criminals. There's Zod, there's Non, and there's Ursa. Non is here, Jack O'Halloran. In real life, Jack O'Halloran was actually uh, brought up and raised in a mob family. If you could track down anything he's got about telling about his life and what his experiences have been like, it's fascinating the way he tells it and very illuminating. He's just as scary in real life, if not scarier, as Non is. We have General Zod, played by Terrence Stamp. So this is the scene that really sets up a lot of the dynamic, primarily for the sequel, more so than for this one. Uh, partly because the original ending for this first film had much stronger ties to the sequel than it 
does in the way it was released, both in 1978 and the year 2000 re-release. And we'll talk about the way the ending was originally written, but I would agree that this choice is better. So we get Zod's speech, where he blames Jor-El and his heirs for the final decision made today. We're going to be talking a little bit about the way it was filmed as well. We've got a few different kinds of shots. There's close-ups, there's medium shots, and there's long shots. In a close-up, you generally see the character's face, and that's about it. Right now there's a medium shot of Jor-El, where we sort of see them from the waist up and a lot of the torso and the long shots where you're putting in a lot of distance. The shots you use help define how much emotional investment you have. So the extreme close-ups of Terrence Stamp in his eyes and his mouth as he's screaming you and then one day your heirs is part of that. Now we've got another close-up of Zod as we see him reacting. The sentence has been passed. Now at this point, they haven't actually revealed what the sentence is, and in the 1978 release, they never really get around to saying what it is. That's something that the comic fans recognize. But if you're just watching it purely from the screen, you wouldn't know the exact name of their prison just by watching the 1978 film. As the dome opens, we have a tower of light coming up from there. And again, the John Williams score tells a lot of the story. So these guys who were able to overthrow a planet and are very much ready to take over as rulers are afraid of what appears to be a sheet of glass coming down from space towards them. It's reflecting crystals deeper than what they've seen. Comes close and with a very simple spinning shot, they're trapped inside. Next up we have one of the first changes between the theatrical release and the 2000 extended edition. So after we see these three criminals take off, we cut into the next scene a little bit sooner than we did in 1978. And that's traditional for Stuart Baird. He tends to cut out a lot of the character moments and a lot of the backstory and just allow the audience to fill in some of the blanks. It worked pretty well in the first release of Superman. I think it worked less well in X-Men and far less effectively in Green Lantern. But here we get them talking about the Phantom Zone and how it's the eternal living death, which Jarrell views as a chance for life nonetheless, as opposed to us. Suicide, no, it's worse, it's genocide. Originally it cut it on, it's suicide, no, it's worse, it's genocide. And I wonder if that line from the extended edition was part of what expired that twist I mentioned that's in Superman Family Adventures number 8. I'm not going to spoil that twist in this commentary, track the issue down either in print or in Comixology. You may have to go to Comixology, it's been announced at this point that the series is ending with issue 12, we have not yet heard an announcement at the time of this recording about what's following it, if anything. 
Now, Vonda comes in and says, well, yes, your facts are right. We debate your conclusions. And she does this wearing those trademark glowing outfits. That's one of the things that really sets us apart and says, yes, this is Krypton. It is a different world. They've got these pretty amazing glowing outfits. Now, this wasn't done in post-production. They actually used material from front projection TV screens that were about the highest end picture screens you can get for the home market at the time and they made the clothing out of those. So if you were wearing that and they put you under the normal studio lights that they used to film, the shirts and the clothing really would glow to that effect. Now the next minor change between the 78 edition and the year 2000 edition is coming up right now as we get a little bit of dialogue about the Phantom Zone again. So basically they're saying, you know, keep your mouth shut. And this helps set up Jarrell. And we see he's got the passion. He sees that he knows what's going on. And, you know, he has no respect for the people on this council at this point. They put the blinders on. And we're going to come back to that in this extended edition. And what I think is one of the most important scenes and one of the reasons I prefer this to the theatrical edition. And now he sets up the loophole he's going to use. He'll remain silent. Neither he nor his wife will leave Krypton. Or Krypton, as Brando pronounces it. Now, Brando had a very specific style. He believed that if an actor came in with memorized dialogue, it would sound like memorized dialogue and, and it's a speech. Whereas most people in most conversations don't have things memorized in advance. They usually speak off the cuff. So to help simulate that, he had cue cards off camera. He had you know, cue cards hidden around the sets. And he would read off those. So he'd read the script in advance. He'd know a general idea of what was coming, but he would try not to memorize the specific dialogue just to give it that natural flavor. Now here we see baby Kal-El for the first time. And he's got the distinctive red, yellow, and blue color scheme. He's the only one not dressed in white. You may also notice that when Jarell is manipulating these crystals, for example, when he pulled that crystal out, he just walked up, held his hand there, the crystal came up to his hand. So it does appear that Kryptonian technology has advanced to the point where it reads the user's thoughts to some degree and responds to them. Which is actually consistent with what's coming later. I've heard a lot of people question one of the later scenes going, how does this work? Well, we already see that there's basically a telepathic link between the users and their technology on Krypton. And that link seems to be bidirectional. So his dense molecular structure will make him strong as one of the key lines that's coming up later and one of the irritants for me in Superman Returns, which we'll be discussing in a few months' time. But he's describing how this will give him abilities and how it'll set him up. Now, some of the timelines don't necessarily add up here. It appears that the Kryptonians have technology 
to view Earth as it stands simultaneously with them without the light speed delay that we would expect. Because later on we hear that it's thousands of years. We have another new scene where they talk about you know, a misuse of energy and a data loss going into Jorel's quarters. Which is something that actually opens up a new interpretation, which I don't think is at all what the filmmakers intended. But what we see is a science council who's decided that Jorel is incorrect. But now we see using too much energy is illegal. So energy controls are governed by law, which means they've got to be vital to something. Now, looking at the surface of the planet, it appears that their technology is interwoven over every inch of the surface. There's no oceans, there's no land, there's just crystal, which they're all living in, with elevated portions granted for cities and such. But the surface is covered in their technology. Now, if a tremendous energy gain, or if a tremendous energy drain, sorry, is punishable as a legal of illegal offense, then I don't know, maybe it stands to reason that energy is needed for something else, possibly to keep the planet stable with all this drawn on it. So this that moment actually does open up the possibility that Jarrell's analysis was wrong and Krypton is destroyed basically because he launched the rocket. So like I said, it's not the interpretation I think they were looking for. You know, because that basically changes this action from saving Kal-El to killing every other Kryptonian. But in any event, we get the tearful goodbye in which Susanna York was told, no, the mother doesn't get to say goodbye to her son because she's not getting paid Marlon Brando's salaries. Which, she was right. It seems out of character for the mother to stand there silently when they're about to blast their son off into space in hopes of saving his life. But she does voice concerns about their baby Kal-El being alone. To which Jarrell responds, he'll never be alone after putting in the crystal. So he has a plan here. We'll see more of it later. and the green crystal. Again, he holds his hand out and the right crystal comes. We do have crystalline technology. At least the Kryptonians do. Which is actually quite possible. It seems to be foreshadowing the quantum computing developments that people are really looking forward to today and working on. Uh, the idea with quantum computing is that you're dealing with the possible energy states. Uh, the reason that a lot of modern technology works, including fluorescent bulbs, including a lot of computer systems, including semiconductors, is because electrons are only allowed to be in certain specific orbits around a nucleus. Now, there's infinitely many of them, but they are discrete. And as you get to higher and higher energy orbits, it becomes more and more likely that the electron just escapes. The idea with quantum computing is that, you know, because of the quantum uncertainties where electrons can be in more than one orbit simultaneously if they're not being directly observed through interaction 
with other particles, they can maintain information in multiple states. To do that, you need a very regular structure to store these electrons in. It's got to be very stable and very regular, which means it's crystal. And if we look at what we're going to be seeing later, kryptonians appear to pack a tremendous amount of energy and a tremendous amount of information into a single crystal. And just looking at how many atoms are available, what the structure is like, it basically requires quantum computing technology. So the Kryptonians got there. So Jorel and Lara have seen their son escape. They know he'll be safe. And now the rest of the planet is coming down around their ears. Again, bright red lights and the wardrobe just automatically changes color and starts to glow. So, of course, part of this, everyone's been talking about the destruction of Krypton and how Krypton is unstable and how Krypton is going to be falling apart and Vonda suggests that it's just shifting in its orbit. But if we watch the last few moments carefully, we see it's actually a lot more than that. So everything is coming down around their ears now. It's actually very intense, especially coming in at the tail end of the disaster movie genre that was huge in the 1970s. So this is after Poseidon Adventure and Towering Inferno. You know, disaster movies were very popular and Boom, we hit a disaster movie right off the bat. So, right here, Rao, the sun, explodes slightly before Krypton. Which means what's going on with Krypton is not really what took out the planet, it's the sun first. And just up ahead we have another slight difference between the theatrical version and the re-released version. Uh, namely, as the the craft carries Kellel away, it passes the three prisoners who are trapped in that phantom zone plate. Which gives the audience the information that, yeah, these guys are all heading in the same direction. Now Jarrell just mentioned Einstein's theory of relativity which again means they could see the future because they were seeing at least in 1905 and they're more than 40 light years out. But one of the side effects of the theory of relativity, at least one of the results, is that if something travels faster than light, then it will actually go backwards in time. And that's something that's going to be made use of later. Originally planned to be part of Superman 2, but they use it in Superman 1. We see on this flight, a lot of what they know about Earth is being relayed to Kal-El as he's growing. So we have a three-year journey. Now a lot of the actors that played young Clark Kent were still actors. So unlike the girl from Aliens who 
has never done another movie before or since and actually grew up to be a kindergarten teacher in Texas, these guys stayed actors for life. One of whom even has a cameo that we'll be discussing in August. But, so now we have this craft that travels from one galaxy to another in about three years, burning up in the Earth's atmosphere. And now we have a moment set in 1951 when the Kents find him. One of the things I love about the Smallville interpretation is that it makes sense as to why we don't have, you know, government troops and things coming to investigate this alien craft landing. They added the full meteor shower, which also explains why so much kryptonite landed on Earth. It all came together, and the ship just kind of got lost in the confusion. In 1951, that's not as much of a concern. Now we have Glenn Ford and Phyllis Thaxter. Now, as I mentioned, Phyllis Thaxter was the producer's mother-in-law, whereas Glenn Ford has been a major actor, and he was a name for decades before this. And this is the boy we'll be discussing again in August. The young Clark Kent. And now we're setting up why he gets the upbringing he does, which is a major part of the Superman mythos. And it needs to be. As the saying goes, absolute power corrupts absolutely. And it's hard to think of an individual with more power than Superman. So the question is, why doesn't he set himself up as ruler? Why doesn't he just take what he wants? And the Kents are a huge part of that equation. We have some nature versus nurture debate going on here. We've got the nature of Jor-El and Lara, who are willing to sacrifice themselves and sacrifice their planet as long as their son was saved. And now we've got the Kents. And that's where we get truth, justice, in the American way. It's coming right off Martha and Jonathan and the upbringing he got in the Midwest. And it's also nice this came right from the comics, basically, at this stage. In the original history, Clark Kent was just dropped off of an orphanage. It's the orphanage that named him Clark Kent. And he was basically raised on his own, at least in the comics. Later on in the radio show in the George Reeves show, he was raised by Eben as an Ebenezer and Sarah Kent. It's not until the Superboy comics that it became Jonathan and Martha... And that's what the movie took their cue from. There's a great shot of the two of them turning around to see the spacecraft and they truly realize how different Clark is. And this is when we know Jonathan is going to agree with Martha. They're going to keep this boy. So now we cut to Clark Kent as a teenager, played by Jeff East, who was unaware his voice was going to be dubbed by Chris Reeve afterwards. Because the voices were different enough that there were concerns... It apparently started with Chris Reeve that it wouldn't seem plausible that they grew up to be the same person. And Jeff East is actually under quite a bit of makeup here as well to make sure that they look a lot more similar, including what is at least partially a false nose. You could see the discoloration on his nose where they were you know, adding the makeup to shape it more like uh, 
Christopher Reeves. And here we have Lana Lang, the classic high school sweetheart, who again was a big part of Smallville, and we'll be seeing her again in Superman 3. And a character named Brad, who was also, you know, sort of tur turned into a big part of Superman 3 as well. So we've got Clark growing up, and the question is, why is he just willing to take this with all he can do? Why is he just standing there? You know, so he's clearly frustrated, but he's still not showing what he can do. He's still keeping it a secret. And here we have the, the kick that's actually powered by an air cannon hidden in the ground. That just so that's not optical effect. They actually did launch that football. It's just near cannon to do it. Now I have another part of the extended edition that didn't show up as much in the theatrical edition. So we've got the classic train, and this is one of the least convincing visual effects, as the young Clark Kent is running past the train, and this young Lois Lane on board whose parents are played by Noel Neal and Kirk Allen. We've discussed them previously. The Noel Neal played Lois Lane, and Kirk Allen played Superman in the 1948 and 1950 serials. So the theatrical edition doesn't name the girl as Lois Lane. That only comes out in the extended edition. In a little bit of extra dialogue that should be coming up any second now, just after we see him running away, leaving the trail of dust. And there we go. Lois Lane, you have a writer's gift for invention. And that's Kirk Allen, the previous Superman right there. So we see Superman running away, a shot that was done by, you know, dragging a bag from the back of a motorcycle. The film is also undercranked, which is something that happens a couple bit a couple later. A couple scenes later. We've got the other teenagers playing Rocker on the Clock. So at the timing we get later, uh, Clark Kent was three when he landed. So why, when he's a teen, why are they still playing Rocker on the Clock? This should now be the 60s. Well, that's actually an homage. Rocker on the Clock was really popularized after the release of Blackboard Jungle starring Glenn Ford. So that's a nod to the Jonathan Kent and the actor playing him more so than something designed to be in the film. It has confused a couple of people, wondering if this was in the 50s and how old Superman's supposed to be when he shows up in Metropolis. But here we get one of the most important scenes. This is where we hear you know, exactly what kind of upbringing Clark has had and why he's not out there doing the things he can do, why he's not just you know tearing apart the bullies, you know, it's coming back to this, which is a huge part of the character. That's, as I said, that's a piece you need for a character with this much power. And Glenn Ford did this so well. It's a, it's a small part, but he did his research, and he did his research on all aspects of it. 
including the the physical gestures at the end of his scene were not scripted they were not directed that's something he chose to do and actually after the shot explained to the director why he did it so we'll get to that in a moment but this is it so we see that Jonathan Kent has put a lot of thought into this he knows the sun is here for a reason and it's not to score touchdowns And I have to admit, even in these close-ups, the lip-syncing between Jeff East's lips and Chris Reeves' voice is bang on. And that's not an easy thing to do. It's done often in animation because the animators will animate the lips around the dialogue rather than vice versa. It's not a great fit with a lot of anime and dubbed because they don't match up. So this is the gesture. Grabbing his left arm, that's something Glenn Ford came in with. And just the slight vibrations, the look on his face, you can see he was even perspiring a little. It's just an incredible moment and very formative. I mean, Clark's been growing up being able to do pretty much anything he wants and having to choose not to. Now in this moment, it doesn't matter what he wants to do, he can't get to his goal. Jonathan Kent is gone. This is where we establish the limit to the powers. Now, I'm not quite sure how Bear and the dog went from being inside the barn with Clark to being outside the barn, but that's a continuity error. As we're panning over the Kansas countryside, we see a very distinctive green grain elevator. That green and that logo, some of us recognize it as the Alberta Wheat Pool. Uh, Kansas and then California later was these scenes were actually filmed in Alberta and the Alberta wheat pool has a very distinctive color and logo on all the grain elevators and that's actually what they used here and here we have that moment of realization There's all these things I can do all these powers and I couldn't even save them it's really starting to drive home and this is something that was added and created largely for the movie. Uh, in the comics, there was basically two threads. There were the Superboy stories, where both parents were alive and well, and there were Superman stories that started after his parents passed away. At least at the time, that changed in the Crisis of Infinite Earths reboot of the universe in 1986. But in 1978, we'd never seen adult Superman interacting with his parents. We'd never seen their moments of death. That was brought in here a touch like Batman, but instead of being as a result of crime and causing him to choose to be a vigilante so that doesn't happen to anyone else, it's natural causes, it's unavoidable, and he recognizes there's limits to his ability. Now, here we have the classic radio. As Clark wakes up. As I mentioned, this is where that sort of bi-directional telepathy of the technology comes into play. Something has woken Clark Kent up in the middle of the night. Or more precisely, something has woken Kal-El up in the middle of the night. And it, it acts, or he's acting like something is calling him. 
It's like he can hear something that the audience really can't. I love the encyclopedias on the wall. I love the microscope on the desk. Again, in the source material, Superman is an accomplished scientist. He has done scientific innovations for Earth, some of which he's brought for other worlds, and you know he's really pushed Metropolis into a new era, partly because of his scientific background, and that's consistent here. And we see that element being brought in in the way they've dressed young Clark's bedroom. Now, the cellar in the barn. It's where the Kent family have saved the craft that they brought him in. To protect his identity. There's the crystal. So something has turned this green crystal on. What appears to be a timer. calling to him. So this is going to be the next stage in his evolution. We have coming up, it's a major moment for Superman in terms of the character. It's also a major moment for General Mills. As we discussed in May's podcast, uh, serial sponsorship has been a big part of Superman since the days of the radio show Into the Adventures of Superman with George Reeves. In that case, it was Kellogg's first with Pep and then with Frosted Flakes. Now they got some product placement money to help with the budget overruns in this film, including from General Mills and Cheerios. The Cheerios line was about ready to fold because Cheerios was the only line. It wasn't doing that well. General Mills paid to put it in this movie. And when kids found out that Superman eats Cheerios, sales went through the roof. In fact, about two or three years later, the sales finally started dropping down So they gave the line a shot in the arm by creating Honey Nut Cheerios to make it a sweeter cereal to compete with that day's cereal market. So that's where Honey Nut Cheerios came from and Apple Cinnamon Cheerios came from Frosted Cheerios. It all started trying to keep the market boost that they got when Martha Kent puts a box of Cheerios on Clark Kent's breakfast table. So now we get Martha and Clark in this shot. You know, they're trying to keep the wheat fields undisturbed. That was a very hard shot to take. But this is when Clark decides it's time to go. There's things he needs to do. And even here, he hasn't really explained to his mom what's going on and why he has to leave. But he's been planning it for a while. He's about to mention Ben Hubbard uh, agreeing to help out. And we'll actually come back to that in September with Superman 4. But one of the really nice things about this. It, you can tell Donner's concerned about the emotional core, as is writer Tom Mankiewicz. There's actually surprisingly little dialogue 
if you watch it with the subtitles on as I'm doing to report this podcast, you'll notice there's long stretches without any. In a lot of movies, it's hard to keep up reading all the dialogue if you're doing it with the subtitles. This one, at least in these scenes, we don't need to. They captured the small town pace that they're trying to convey with the life that Superman grew up with. So we get that the difficult goodbye with the cuts and the pans after the long embrace and just pulling out with the crane shot. Uh, this is called a crane shot literally because the camera is mounted on the end of a crane. So we're really getting a feel for the scope of what's coming. There's a whole lot of world out there, and it's time to leave Smallville and check it out. So we're no longer filming in Canada completely. A lot of these aerial shots were filmed in the Canadian Rockies. It's actually a very good place to get shots like these. Uh, seriously, if you've never been to the Canadian Rockies, check it out. I recommend Jasper over Banff primarily because there's less foot traffic. Calgary's a much got well, Calgary's a much busier airport, and that's closer to Banff. If you fly into Edmonton, it's about three hours west of that to drive to Jasper, and it really is impressive. But now we are no longer in the actual Rockies. Now we're in the James Bond studio at Shepperton Studios in England. So this isn't ice and snow, this is actually styrofoam and salt. And the salt, I just guess, just played havoc on the shoes and the equipment of the people when they were filming these. So that and a combination of matte paintings and insert shots. So, and here we have Clark opening up the bag that he's got that crystal in, as well as other things. You can actually see the red, blue, and yellow fabric in there as everything is getting set up. Again, it's a lot of attention to detail and a lot of materials and props designed because they know what's coming. So apparently the crystal doesn't need an instruction manual. It seems to basically be telling Clark what to do with it. So in this crystal, we don't just have the blueprints, we have everything we need to construct the Fortress of Solitude. Now, the Fortress of Solitude, Superman's had a number over the years. The one on the Arctic is probably the best known. Uh, that one started in the 50s, but if you go back and read comics in the 40s, such as the Superman Chronicles that have been released, his first Fortress of Solitude was actually in Central America. And he was, at the time they mentioned he had multiple fortresses, although you didn't see the rest. It wasn't until the 50s when they were reacting to Frederick Wortham and seduction of the innocent that we really had established what the Arctic fortress looked like, and that was the main fortress. But here we see this one little crystal driving a lot of the technology and reshaping the water into crystals, reprogramming it, and building this fortress of solitude. This is all done in the Shepperton Studio soundstage. Incredible power costs. 
as they're driving the spotlights and doing the light show for the sequence. And part of the reason it was filmed here is because it is the biggest soundstage available. Now the original plan was to shoot in Italy. Uh, they weren't able to do that because Marlon Brando was basically a wanted criminal. Um, they decided Last Tango in Paris, directed by Bernardo Bertolucci, constituted essentially offensive pornography. So there was a warrant out for Brando's arrest for his role in that film. Because of that, they had to move production from Italy to England. And when they did that, they had to let go of their original choice for director because that director was in tax exile and couldn't spend more than 30 days a year in England. And that's just not enough to direct the film. That's when they brought in Richard Donner instead. They weren't going to get rid of Brando because his name was a huge part of the reason they got the budget for it. I guess his involvement was one of the main reasons that Gene Hackman signed on to do Lex Luthor, even though it turns out they didn't actually have any scenes together. And that's part of how they got Mario Puzo to outline the original script, which, as we said, would have been huge, and had a page one rewrite by Tom Mankiewicz, who was coming in off the James Bond films, and brought on board by Richard Donner. Here is where Clark Kent gets the answers that Jonathan and Martha Kent were unable to provide. So not only did that one green crystal have everything it needed to build this fortress, it apparently has an imprint of Jarrell, including his thoughts, his emotions, his feeling, his personality. It's all there. And here you have the holographic image of Jarrell, which again inspired a lot of what we see in Smallville, where he was actually voiced by Terrence Stamp, which was a nice touch. And this is where Jarrell mentions that he's been dead for many thousands of your years. So it does appear to be sublight travel through the six galaxies from where Krypton was to where Earth is. So, the Kryptonians were able to see the different time areas, or time eras, from their world when they were examining Earth. Because otherwise they just would not have seen enough of human civilization to make this decision. And this is where the Fortress of Solitude is officially named for most of the public. This is the first time it was seen in an incarnation outside of the comics themselves. Here's the big history lesson. At least the second one where we go through the powers and they go on a journey together. And this is actually a journey which internally lasts for 12 years in terms of the, the story structure. So that says a lot about the Kryptonian physiology because it seems like Clark doesn't actually leave the fortress. That's where he has access to Jor-El and Jor-El's image. So they've got to be traveling together 
more metaphorically and figuratively, like some sort of incredibly advanced virtual reality. So this is Jorel taking him on a universal tour. showing him the planet Krypton, showing him his history, talking about the various concepts of immortality, which is another nod to the comics. There have been you know, people who suggest that with Superman's healing with his abilities, maybe he won't die of old age. So, again, they're going through a lot of these effects you can actually produce in the lab if you play with electrical equipment, play with water, burning match heads. It looks incredible on screen. And it's one of the nice things about the 1970s and those films. The special effects are going to the point where they could do it, but you needed to be very creative. It wasn't just, I want to see this, make the computer spit that out. You had to find a way to do it on your own. And you have to find a way to take everyday things and make them seem extraordinary. So we get the final words about humanity, which really inspire the best interpretations of Superman, where he stands as that inspirational beacon. In a lot of ways, Superman stories are most interesting when you see the effect he has on others. And now we're at what I consider one of the greatest shots in cinematic history in terms of the impact it had. Superman in the suit for the first time he leans forward and flies. It's not like the previous incarnations where there's a cartoon or you see a guy on wires or it's just a camera panning it from his perspective. It's the first time he actually and convincingly flies backed by that phenomenal John Williams score. And now Clark Kent gets out of the Daily Planet for the first time. And we're seeing it from his perspective. So the cabbie paid him, now he's looking up at the building, where you hear the fresh fruits and vegetables. But they haven't quite revealed what he looks like now. Cut inside to Jimmy Olsen, with the classic film cameras. It's not today's digitals, we see people smoking indoors. There's some parts of this film that don't age well, and the Daily Planet scenes are part of them. It was a nice choice to go back and use the Daily Planet. Uh, at the time in the comics, Clark Kent was actually a TV reporter. And there's Lois Lane appearing for the first time, introducing her spelling problems, which have since been adopted by the comics. But yeah, in an attempt to make the character a lot more relevant in the 70s, Superman went through a bit of a redesign. A character named Morgan Edge bought out the Daily Planet so it was still part of the conglomerate, but Superman himself was moved into the role of TV reporter. So now we get Jackie Cooper as Perry White. Now Jackie Cooper had been a celebrity since age five. He didn't know any other life. And Clark Kent, really seen for the first time. Now Keenan Wynn was supposed to play the role, but he had heart problems. So Jackie Cooper was called in on very short notice to the point where it was they called him they said we need this can you get to England he said sure drove directly to the airport they faxed the script to the airport he picked it up there 
and started memorizing his lines on the flight. When he landed, he basically went directly to the studio and started shooting. So there was less than 48 hours between the job offer and filming, and he was on set for only basically a weekend. He showed up Friday night, and he had to be back in America Monday morning. So all of these Perry White scenes were done in basically one take, and they were done in very short order with very quick recess between them and long days over a weekend. And we get the super copy t-shirt on the copy boys, which is another nice little touch for everything that's going in here. But yeah, it just says a lot about Jackie Cooper's ability. He nailed every role he's in. He nailed the scenes, he nailed the lines, and he did it with almost no prep at all. So and he carries pretty much every scene he's in as well. He's not like he's a background player. When he's there, he owns the scene. We get the great line about how Clark Kent is the fastest typist he's ever seen. And right here, we see the core of Clark Kent's values and respecting where he comes from and how much his parents meant to him. And it's so they haven't been replaced by Jor-El. He still sends half his paycheck to his silver-haired old mother back in Kansas. Beating up to one of my favorite lines in the movie, which is coming up right here. I love that. Not really, no. No, there aren't any more like him at home. It's got that nice double meaning. We see that Lois sees something different, and we've got that you know, great little comment to Krypton. Because at this point, as far as Kal-El or Clark is concerned, he is the only survivor of Krypton. That's what he believes from his conversation with Jor-El. He doesn't know about Zod, Ursa, and Non. Now, we also see a bit of a schoolboy crush here already. When you notice when we're in the bullpen desks, Clark spends a lot of his time just looking at Lois. And we also see the down-to-earth, and it starts forging the relationship between him and Jimmy and Lois. You know, Lois and Clark are two of the people who treat Jimmy like a human being. And even here, he's still acting like a bit of a schoolboy. He's timed his exit, and he's just following Lois. He's not really part of the conversation. He's just there... He waits while they're talking, and, oh, hi, Clark, you're there. So it's this nice little quaint infatuation here. They don't push it to the stalking point, gladly, but there's a little bit there. And then we have, here with the use of the word swell, it's a nice little tie-in. He spent 12 years traveling the galaxy with Jarrell. He... Didn't really learn the new vocabulary, and he's got that just the great sheepish smile that was on his face a moment ago as he reacts to it. Now this is Rex Reed, who was an actual movie reviewer at the time, just doing his quick cameo. There were other cameos planned in here, including one by Kojak that never made it to film, thankfully. That was in the draft of the script before Tom Mankovich took over. And there's the most backbone Clark shows in the course of the movie. The mugger pulls out the gun, and he still makes sure he's in front of Lois. 
So everything else he does, he seems sheepish. He seems bookish. Uh, a milksop, as General Thunderbolt Ross would call him, if it was a Marvel character. But you could see he is trying to influence and change the world. He does want him to make a difference a piece at a time. He is downplaying what he can do, but he's still not going to let others get in the line of danger. You know, and for a moment there, he honestly believes that the guy turned over a new leaf just by explaining it. Now, if you notice, in a lot of these close-up scenes, you can see that Clark Kent's eyes are brown. That's actually going to be a nice little touch later. So there we go. His Clark's hair is parted on the right as well. He's got the brown eyes. And we're about to get the reveal that the audience has already figured out. He caught the bullet, even though he lets Lois believe he's fainted. There we have Lois using the word swell. So you could see he's kind of getting to her. She made a big deal about how nobody is comfortable using that word, and then she uses it shortly thereafter. Right before Clark, you know, reveals the exact contents of her purse. This is the first hint the audience has about his x-ray vision. He hasn't actually used it before. Now we cut to Ned Beatty as Otis. So this is actually the first introduction to any of the villains in the film. And it's at the 58 minute mark. So most movies are done in a three act structure. And we're getting close to the end of the first act. The third act is actually pretty short. The first act is usually setting up the characters, setting up their relationships, and ends with what they call the point of no return. So we're coming to the stage where things are set in motion and we can't turn around. Here we get some foreshadowing as the newspaper salesman talks about the XK-101 rockets that are going to be tested. This is our first hint about the level of competence Otis has. You know, we know he's working for Lex Luthor. We know those officers want Lex Luthor, but he can't even manage to steal from a blind guy. So we have Metropolis 46 on foot. We're also getting to the points where I wonder how many different shows and different movies have made reference and paid homage to this film. We have two officers, and the one with the fancy hat is Harry. He's the one that's heading down after Otis. While his partner Armis goes for backup. Now, it was actually in one of these scenes that we were supposed to have the cameo for Kojak, who was to offer Lex Luthor a lollipop in Grand Central Station and ask, who loves you, baby? Kojak being one of the most popular detective series on TV at the time. But I'm actually glad they didn't do that, because one of the side effects of the major cameos like that is that they tend to get dated. And the Rex Reed cameo works as himself because you know years later 
it makes sense for Lois to, you know, bump into someone she knows on the way out of the building she works in and talk to him, introduce him around. That's what she's been asked to do. Wouldn't really make sense to have Kojak on screen. So now we have the classic 1978 technology of the walkie-talkie with that big strap as they're coming in under. It's got to be a pretty good walkie-talkie to work that well on the subway system, though. i got to give them that. So now we see the access to Lex Luthor's hideout. And this is the point where we're getting close to that moment where I wonder how many things are paying homage to Superman as they continue. So this guy figures out how he gets in. We're about to get our introduction to Lex Luthor in an off-screen voice with actually a pretty significant line. The It's amazing that brain can generate enough power to keep those legs moving. And I guess it had an impact on Gene Hackman when he read that line as well. Years later, he ran into screenwriter Tom Mankovich in a hotel at some intercontinental resort. I don't remember if it was South America or Europe. It was mentioned in the commentary. And Mankovich was just signing into the hotel and he hears Gene Hackman's voice behind him saying, it's amazing that brain can generate enough power to keep that pen moving. But here we get our introductions to Lex Luthor and to Eve Tussmacher. We lose Harry. All that's left of him really is his hat which makes me wonder if Harry the Hat on Cheers is an homage to this film. We see as his partners come up calling for Harry, we get the hat. So actually part of the reason I wonder that is one of the other elders was also named Harry Anderson. There's only allowed to be one actor in the Screen Actors Guild with a given name running at a time. But there we have Miss Tessmacher's first line and Lex Luthor with a head full of hair. Now, originally in the comics, he had red hair. And in Adventure Comics 276 from 1960, he lost that hair when Superboy blew out a fire in his lab when he was when Lex Luthor was also a boy in Smallville. And that's where the rivalry began. He blamed Superboy for making him bald when he blew out the fire and sprayed him with chemicals. Um, rumor has it that Gene Hackman actually refused to either shave his head or wear a skull cap for most of the film. And instead he came up with the idea that Lex Luthor would just run through a series of wigs. So they just kept dyeing and styling Gene Hackman's real hair through the course of the film. He also didn't want to shave off his mustache. And Richard Donner managed to do that by giving him a call before they'd ever met and making him a deal that if Hackman shaved his mustache, Donner would shave his own. And the first time they met face-to-face and Donner saw that Hackman had shaved his mustache, Donner peeled his own mustache off since, you know, Richard Donner didn't actually have a mustache, he wore a fake one and just did that to get Gene Hackman to shave his for the part. So... Here we have Lex Luthor and his underlings. There's Otis. And this is one of the things that even Tom Mankovich, the writer, wasn't happy with. The studio wouldn't let them 
go with more serious villains. They wanted it a little goofy, a little bit campy. To this point, the most successful superhero film on record was the 1966 Batman film with Adam West and Burt Ward, which is about as campy as they come. And they were trying to capture that because as far as studios worked, it worked before, therefore it can work again, therefore it's a sound investment, therefore we want it. So they were trying to catch that old comfortable flavor, which is why this Lex Luthor, you know, he tolerates a much greater level of incompetence than even Lyle Talbot's Lex Luthor did in the 1950 serial. Had this been the Talbot version, Otis would have been teleported into just scattered atoms in space long ago. And here we're getting the spiel with Lex Luthor's obsession with land. So we've finally got pretty much all the characters positioned as they need to be. We've met the heroes, we've met the villains, they just haven't met each other. Back to another one of these scenes that were filmed in an incredible hurry with Jackie Cooper. So, and we see, again, Clark in the background, spending a lot of his time just looking at Lois, who's wearing a whole lot of pink. That's another thing that's going to be coming up later. Actually, that line is one of the reasons she got the part. There's a joke coming up, and she's one of the few people who read for the part, and the only one on the shortlist that actually got the humor. That's part of the reason she was cast. There's another super copy t-shirt, and there again we see you know, Clark Kent leaving at the same time as Lois and just sort of timing the same exit. So it's a little bit of that schoolboy crush again. You see his initial disappointment when she talks about how she's booked. And spirits perk up when he finds out, oh, she's just going for a story. It's not another guy. And then we get a lot of the the character development for Lois and a lot of what she sees. And again, Clark just has blinders on when she's there. He doesn't even notice which room he's going into. The question is, how much of that is a show and how much of that is actually Superman really is distracted? coming shortly up to the end of Act 1, the so-called point of no return, where from that moment on, the cat's out of the bag and things aren't changing. And we're talking about going up, we get the nice little touch where Clark says goodnight to a couple complete strangers just because that's the polite thing to do. And he comes back to hit the down button, earlier on you may notice he hit the up button. And now we're coming up to the second of the two truly iconic scenes in this film. The first was Superman taking flight for the first time. And the second is the helicopter rescue, which was originally scripted as though the helicopter was secure. It was just Lois Lane that was in danger. And it was Richard Donner who came up with the idea of escalating it. So we see the helicopter coming in. There are some lens flares, which really bother Jeffrey Unsworth. Um, they, for decades, they spent a long time trying to figure out how to shoot film 
to eliminate the lens flares because they felt that was just a reminder to the audience that you're watching a movie and that there's a camera there because we don't see lens flares in real life we only see them through a camera which is why you know a lot of film buffs were really irritated by J.J. Abrams' Star Trek That's, there was even a quick fad in the early first person shooters of the 90s where lens flares were being put in the games and people were hoping they'd go away shortly because it was chewing up computing power there's no lens there, it's something they were putting in for style and now we get it, here's the accident that's getting in the way of the helicopter lose the stabilizer rotor control and we see that Margot Kidder really can scream she's got a few opportunities to do that in the course of the movie this is also one of the scenes that makes it so hard for me to watch The Big Bang Theory I've seen two episodes of it the first episode I saw I saw on a plane and it was one of the earlier episodes and they were talking about sitting down for their monthly marathon of all four Christopher Reeve Superman films and Sheldon says to Penny I think the girl across the hall that one of the reasons this doesn't work is because you know it doesn't matter who you are if you got arms of steel catching you in arms of steel isn't going to help any more than anything else you really need to match her velocity otherwise you're just going to hurt her and kill her anyway and while that's absolutely true as we'll notice in a few minutes this is one of the movies that gets it right and if we really had characters as anal retentive as Sheldon Cooper watching this on a monthly basis, they'd have noticed that. And that's, I said, it just, every time I watch Big Bang Theory, I see a scene like that that just drives me up the wall. Because their characters are making mistakes those characters wouldn't make. Also because it's been, it seems to spend a lot of time laughing at geeks rather than laughing with geeks. But one of the other nice touches about this scene, though, is the very realistic reaction of the world around it. So we've got police, we've got fire, we've got the emergency crews, we've got camera crews showing up. It is, you know, right outside a news building. We've got the crowds gathering, the police trying to hold them back, and they're not just standing calmly behind the line, they are pushing for a better view. Now the crowds are coming out with the Daily Planet. We see Clark pick up the hat. And now he we get that moment of realization where he sees what's going on. Come to the classic phone booth that he used to duck into to change his outfit. Only the modern phone booths don't work that way. So, you see Lois is about to lose her grip. She's hanging on literally by a thread. And that great shot that comes right out of the Fleischer cartoons. Superman rips his shirt open and there's the S. Quick change in the revolving door. And he takes off. So the first people to see Superman in flight are a pimp and two of his employees, shall we call them. That's He's actually credited as a pimp in the credits. Now, here we go. We notice people are panicking. Superman goes up. Watch the backgrounds here. He's going down when he catches her, slops, and then starts to go up. He does match her velocity. The totally incredulous response here for that WPIX reporter is just great. I mean, people are at a loss for words. I've never seen anything like this. They're just talking. Here comes the helicopter again, going down, stops, and goes back up. He gets it right. 
And this is the point of no return, the end of Act 1. Superman is out there for the world to see, saving the helicopter on film, on camera, in front of all these witnesses, brings Lois Lane and the helicopter safely back up to the top. And of course, he's always concerned about everyone involved. We got the first real close up. Now he's got the bright blue eyes, and his hair is parted on the left with that spit curl. We also see he had that wide grin walking away from her. He knew what was going on, and yet he's got a straight face when he sees her. So he also knows how to play. We're getting a little hint of cockiness. I mean, as I said before, they say power corrupts, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. And I've always wondered, you know, you need to have a reason there for Superman not to do it. First watching it, I could accept it just because he's Superman. In this extended edition, we're actually going to see a scene coming up shortly that explicitly spells out part of the thought process he's in and how he keeps himself in check. We get some of these early flying scenes of things that they never could have done with George Reeves or Kirk Allen. The technology didn't exist because it was invented for this film. It's part of the reason for the major cost overruns in this film is by figuring out how to make the flying work. Now we get our next criminal. Now this was filmed like, you know, Batman, again the Adam Westbert Ward series, when they were climbing on the bat ropes and then the the celebrity of the week would stick their head out one of the windows and if you check the female celebrities their earrings would be dangling into the building because they were actually lying on their backs and the camera was turned sideways which is how this is done as well so Chris Reeve is standing straight up the burglar is crawling around on all fours and they built a fake building on its side can we get a little hint of cockiness he doesn't just pick the guy up he waits there to make that big impression does the going down joke turns to catch him. Now here's a tough shot to make. Superman and the burglar are standing on the side of a building. That poor guy in the chair is strapped in a major harness, keeping him absolutely rigid. Things are glued down on the desk. He's face down. Now Superman brings the cat burglar down to Officer Mooney, and again he checks the name. He uses the name. It's just get that classic manners and the classic politeness brought in. And he just drops the guy off. Flies away. Here's another sequence that, again, makes me wonder how many homages have been made to this film. So there's the car chase. We've got a few criminals in the car. And we've got a few that they're going to meet on the other end. So we'll do a head count. So they've managed to drive the police to the little shack. The police car keeps coming. Again, a lot of damage and destruction. It's driving up a lot of the price producing it, and we've got a car chase sequence, which was again popular in the 70s. They were deliberately trying to get a little bit of everything. And now there's four guys in the car rushing out towards the ship. Superman picks up on it. He's heading in there following the muzzle flashes. So we get the shootout. And a couple of them get left behind. 
So two of them are left on the docks, two of them come from the car to the ship, and there's, you know, more than those two on the ship. There's people waiting. And here's another case of the showmanship and the cockiness that Superman has in this first night out. Camera cuts from a close-up to a medium shot, and we see Superman's reflection in the glass before we see him properly, and he's just standing there looking imposing. There's two guys inside, one on top, one behind him. So there's four more on the ship. Now we just saw the name of the ship briefly on the outside. I don't know if you caught it. We'll be able to see it clearly after these guys come in. So this is the same Officer Mooney who picked up the cat burglar, reporting what he saw. And yeah, the world's not believing him. So maybe it was a bird. He doesn't suggest it was a plane. I'm kind of surprised he doesn't. But here we cut to the shot on the outside with Dolan and Mooney. And the name of the ship is the Serenity. So we've got a crew of six thieves on a ship called the Serenity. Makes me wonder if Joss Whedon was paying homage to this when he was designing Firefly. We'll see another nice touch here. So Superman isn't just concerned with the big rescues. He's just concerned with helping everywhere he can help. Even if that's something as you know, seemingly minor as getting a cat out of a tree. It also says a lot about the rigging that they've got him you know, coming in nicely. The way they shot it, you can't see the rigging very clearly. They did close enough shots, it doesn't stand out. Drops off the cat, flies away, and again, we get a very graceful outgoing flight. F far better than anything that could have happened before. And then we get the joke that wouldn't play today where basically the child gets smacked around for telling her mom what happens. There's some humor that thankfully doesn't age. So, and now this sequence is one that was homaged very well in the John Byrne reboot of Superman. Uh, so at the time this was made, John Byrne would have been actually close to doing his run on X-Men. Might have been in the middle of it, might have been wrapping up. I haven't checked the dates exactly. But it was very much around this time. Later on, he'd get the chance to take over Superman, which is his dream job. So doing the pencil work and the scripts for DC. And the Air Force One rescue from this movie was incorporated as Superman's debut feat in the comics. And again, that's where uh, he gets his name from. In the comics, anyway, Lois was the one that names him. Here, you don't see him refer to himself as Superman. I mean, yeah, he's got the big S on his chest, but one of the things that was established in the Krypton scenes is that it's the family crest. That's what Jor-El was wearing. And you notice every male member of the Kryptonian Council also has a crest on their chest. It was just part of the ceremonial dress. Now I have lines that are a little bit longer than they need to be. And Superman's just filling in for that engine. Now we have the scene from the extended edition where he talks to Jarrell afterwards, and Jarrell says, Yeah, you enjoyed it. And Superman admits it felt so good, he got carried away. That's this 
I think is a pivotal scene that should have been there from the start. It explains a few things. As Jarrell's going through and he's explaining why he needs to keep the Clark Kent identity. It's you know, we get that little joke with the twenty eight hours a day instead of twenty four, which does drive home the differences between the worlds. So but you know, we get the reasons, yeah, he would be working twenty four seven if he didn't keep the Clark Kent identity. And he needs to step back to care for himself and to let humanity develop on its own. And he also talks about you know, they're going to hurt you through the people you care for. Now he said that there's only two reasons. Well, the reasons are two, but now he's adding in, don't punish yourself for feelings of vanity, simply learn to control them. So this, to me, is the key for why the, the film incarnation of Superman doesn't go that absolute power corrupts absolutely root. This conversation with Jor-El, the father he never knew, it drives home the fact that that same vanity that he's feeling is the reason they can't be together. It's the reason Krypton is gone. And it has some very destructive side effects. Now, I'm not sure I'm completely on board with you know, Superman reaching out to hug a hologram, which makes me wonder if that's one of the reasons it was left out of the original release. But otherwise, I think that is an extremely important scene in terms of explaining why the character becomes what he becomes and why he does what he does. I mean, with him really feeling alone at the end of The Fortress of Solitude. Now, the newscaster on the right is Michael Anson. Some of us may recognize him as the hotel manager from Ghostbusters, from the, the Hotel Sedgwick. Now, as we cut back, here's another little insert for the extended edition. The man on the right saying, yeah, that'll be the day, huh? When a guy could fly, that is director Richard Donner doing a little cameo. With no mustache, of course. So Superman is still unaware of Lex Luthor. But now Lex Luthor knows about him. So... Now, Lex clearly can't take on Superman physically, but he is traditionally considered one of the most intelligent characters in the DC Universe. So he gets the chance to plan and to go through it, but we also see how his ego gets in the way, how he knows Superman's the real article, because if anyone were to do this as a hoax, it would have been him. This is the moment where we find out about the wigs, and we see that's the interpretation they're using for Lex and why he's not bald because up to this point we just saw him with hair. And here comes Otis, again played largely for comic relief. Yeah. And he's constantly eating. Why? Because Ned Beatty was considered, and probably was, one of the heavier people out there in the 1970s, which is not necessarily true today. If we look closely, we see that they built this pool just by flooding part of this underground subway system that they're using as their base. We see the entrances to tracks 11 and 12. There's other ones that 
talk about taking entrances to the airport or sorry to the restaurant and go through from here so now here's uh, another set of Perry White scenes running through all the different articles and all the reporting of Superman by the Daily Planet and other newspapers and Clark Kent is sort of speaking on behalf of Superman and you know and he's starting to realize oh yeah just a first impression he's gotta curtail what he knows but then Jackie Cooper is just running with it asking for the real story it's a lot of monologue like I said he's in complete control in every scene he's in and given the time frames either he memorized them extremely quickly when it came to his lines you know or he just sort of got the tone of it and did some excellent improv going through and even addressing everyone by name you know as we're running through here we can even see you know Clark almost answers when he asks for his favorite ball team meanwhile Lois has got the note signed from a friend which is of course how Superman referred to himself after saving her on the top of the helipad again we see the indoor smoking that puts this clearly in the late 70s as if the wardrobe wasn't enough as well as the very largely knotted ties and then here we cut to the famous balcony scene and uh, yes Timex did sponsor this everyone's wearing a Timex watch in this movie It was the belief of Tom Mankiewicz and Richard Donner that if you could make the love story work, then everything else in the movie would just fall into place. And that's a lot of what this does. And it works for the most part. It also ends with a shot that drove me bonkers as a kid. Even as a kid, I was always looking into how movies worked and trying to figure out the secrets and trying to figure out how the special effects work. And there's one scene at the end that I literally watched over and over and over. I spent about 45 minutes rewinding it and rewatching it uh, the first time I saw this movie. And the first time I saw it was actually on VHS at my aunt's house uh, after Superman 3 had been released. Um, I was 14 months old when this came, was released for the first time, or sorry, 15 months old. But So we can tell that Superman's had something of a career because, you know, he's got his x-ray vision. She's already aware of his x-ray vision by the time this report comes out. So he's been out there for a while. You also get some great dialogue with that, no, I never drink when I fly, and getting started on the interview. So we also see where where Lois is going with this, where you know, her first question about his vital statistics is, are you married? Oh, no, do you have a girlfriend? And Superman sort of gives a bit of a flirty response as well. So it's, they both know that the interest is mutual here. Um, now here Clark is, or Superman is vague about his age. Yeah. And that right there is one of the lines that 
goes right back to the beginning when Marlon Brando, as Jarrell says, his dense molecular structure will give him great power. Um, unlike the way it was interpreted by Brian Singer in Superman Returns, it wasn't, you know, he weighs around 200 or 225 pounds. When he says, I weigh 225, he means, I weigh 2,225 pounds. So he's been using his flight to keep himself in check the whole time. So he doesn't go barreling through floors and such. So it is one of the moments that actually it's nice. It sets him apart and it does establish he's not human in a lot of ways. So, And here's the line. What color underwear am I wearing? That's the one that Marco Kidder saw the humor, but a lot of the other actresses who screened for the part didn't. So we also established that lead is a problem for the X-ray vision. So and right there, yeah, pink. So like we said, Lois were the pink suit earlier. We come back to the pink here and now. So, and this is where we publicly get the story that he's from Krypton. Which does show actually a little bit of the, the arrogance and the cockiness that he was trying to avoid at this point. So he's talked about how he can't see through lead. He talks about his home world. So he is revealing a fair amount of information. I mean, he's trying to be a little bit protective about his age. Um, possibly because he's technically thousands of years old now, just as you know, Jarrell died thousands of years ago. At least in one draft of the script. And right there, there's the classic I like pink very much Lois line. Um, as I mentioned, the people who do the All Yeah podcast, um, they're big fans of Superman. They've already done a podcast with their commentary of the theatrical release. They've also taken over what was a pretty much defunct Facebook group, also named... I like pink very much, Lois. So if you track that group down on Facebook, you'll find a lot of information about Superman and what's going on with those guys and a lot of their fans. It's a neat little community. You should check it out, as well as the Aya podcast. Um, and while we're going through that, I missed the line about truth, justice, and the American way, which Superman sends absolutely straight-faced. And that's a big part of how the character works. He isn't naive. He's not trying to be campy, it's just for him? No, really, truth, justice, and the American way is an achievable goal, and he's going to work for it. And it's starting to get a little less believable. You can tell even Lois, you know, she doesn't believe she's going to be flying, but nope. That's where they're going. And this is a big part of what they felt would really establish the love story between them, is this flight sequence. see her reacting to to the way he describes Clark and his reaction to her saying, oh, he's nothing. And he's setting it up. Again, the blue eyes and the hair parted on the left. They did 
Clark Kent and Superman differently enough that you can almost believe the people working with him every day wouldn't put two and two together. Now, this is also well played. She doesn't dive in immediately. I mean, she is scared, but she has flown with him before. The first time she met him, she was flying with him when he was saving her life. So you can see it doesn't take much before she starts to get a little more comfortable with him and starts smiling. But there is some of that. It's a little bit of a delay. It's also a little bit fuzzy. I don't know if this close-up was done afterwards or if they had uh, nylon stockings over the camera, which is a technique developed on the original Star Trek uh, to soften the look of the women. Now I have the Statue of Liberty, which clearly establishes that, at least in the film incarnation, Metropolis really is New York. In the original comics by Siegel and Schuster, Metropolis was basically modeled after Cleveland, uh, partly because that's where Jerry Siegel grew up, and, well, at least after moving there from Toronto, and partly because they felt that, you know, Superman would be a hero for the, at least America, you know, at least the entire country, if not more of the world, and setting up in Cleveland was, you know, a lot more relatively, or not more centrally positioned. So from there he'd be just as able to jump to the East Coast as he would be to jump to the West Coast and just help out wherever he was needed. So now we have them coming up above the cloud cover. Now, the higher up in the altitude you get, the harder it is for sound to be transmitted and the less oxygen there is, which makes it a little bit harder to breathe. And we'll actually see they're even playing to that moment here where it's harder to breathe as Superman pantomimes, you know, instead of telling her to move her arm out. So for the rest of the sequence, there's no spoken dialogue. There is dialogue, it's just not spoken. We can also see some of the limits of the blue screen technology at the time. Uh, if we look carefully, there's a few moments here where we see background stars through the characters. They just, you know, the CGI wasn't there to rule it out completely. You can even see some of the stars disappear before their hands quite reach them. This was also pretty grueling to shoot because they're out you know, lying on their stomachs in incredibly tight harnesses to keep them secure with massive fans blowing them right in their faces, blowing their hair back. They had to keep their eyes wide open even though the air was cutting through them and drying them out. So, you know, it does come out somewhat romantic on film as it's intended, but it's tough to do in real life. And now here we have that Can You Read My Mind? spoken dialogue which is it was originally intended for Margot Kidder to sing this as Lois Lane so that it would be integrated in lyrics and it would be more of a song in the background than sort of the poem that it has become uh, unfortunately by the reports we've heard Margot Kidder is really not that capable uh, of a singer and they thought it just sounded terrible, so they had her come back in and re-record it just as spoken word. When I first got the special edition on DVD, I was really hoping 
that the isolated musical score would eliminate that dialogue so I could flip to that soundtrack and back for the sequence because I find that it doesn't really work even a spoken dialogue uh, unfortunately because it was really composed as lyrics they chose to keep it so that's the only dialogue we get from the musical score um, and again they're communicating through pantomime and we can see a star right through Superman's left shoulder blade right before that bird flew by more through their their chest areas now and here they are coming back below the cloud cover. So we are getting close to that shot that bugged me. I mean, as I said, the first time I watched this, I actually saw this at my aunt's house at one of our family gatherings. It's actually was after uh, a Halloween. She did an annual Halloween party where she hosted all of us to come over in costume, which is also sort of a joint birthday party for her daughter. I remember, we watched this as a group, and I freaked out over this scene and backed it up to watch it a couple times during the first run and then people got frustrated, we finished the whole movie some of the younger cousins went to sleep, a lot of the older cousins were still going to sleep and I sat there for about 30 or 40 minutes backing up this shot trying to figure out how they did it and off the quality of a VHS copy I couldn't figure it out I did finally figure it out when I got the DVD copy and it was confirmed later that it's right but if you watch just after this moment after the close-ups, and say goodnight, Superman flies off the balcony. So that would have been Christopher Reeve flying away in the harness. Lois thinks, what a Superman. Takes a few steps, names him Superman for her article. And the camera hasn't cut. This is one continuous shot. And she walks to the front door opening it up so we're going through all the locks and there is Chris Reeve again now he's got the brown eyes instead of the blue now his hair is parted on the right instead of the left the spit curl is gone there's a full wardrobe change seconds after he was flying off in the harness and I went through this over and over and over trying to figure out how they did it like I said in with VHS the difference in the quality wasn't as obvious as it was on DVD and I did figure it out, the DVD commentary confirms they actually had filmed the Superman sequence in advance and did it with a front projection screen so that was being projected with dialogue being dubbed in while Chris Reeve at this point you know, when Margot Kidder was filming was standing behind that door the whole time now we see the moment where in Clark is ready to reveal himself to Lois and let her know who he really is. But she's just still walking around stunned, doesn't even notice him with the glasses off. And that's the one thing he backs out from, is telling Lois. Can we see his reaction and that little grin? So he knows as Superman he's getting to her at least. And now we cut to Lex Otis and Eve Tessmacher again. And we're starting to see some of what's coming later. Now clearly there was more to the interview in print than we heard on screen by the time you know Lex Luthor talks about you know the locate exact location of the galaxy he mentions a number of the other elements that are in here. So we're starting to see Eve Tessmacher is getting a little infatuated with him which is going to be important. 
we see a new hairstyle for Lex, you know, with the the gray streaks in this wig. You also see Miss Tessmacher doesn't quite get the metaphor that Lex is using. So again, the question is, why is he surrounding himself with such incompetence? Notice was distracted looking for the secrets of the universe in his candy bar wrapper and didn't quite hear Luther. So again, we get some of that campy, goofy, you know, take on the villains that Donner and Mankiewicz wanted to take out, but the studio couldn't quite let them get through. But we do see the sadistic side of Lex Luthor. And we do see, you know, a lot of what attracts Miss Tessmarker to him is the power. That's going to be coming up a, bit, a little bit later as well. And here, we get a little bit of inconsistency in terms of the timelines, where the interview said, you know, Krypton blew up in 1948, it took him three years to get here, he landed in 51. Well, if Krypton blew up in 1948, how could Jor-El have been dead for thousands of years by this point? It doesn't quite add up. Yeah. We also see Lex explaining things, and again, we get a bit of a different picture between these two sidekicks of his. With a little bit of explanation, Miss Tessmacher gets it. She won't get there on her own, at least not that quickly, but she'll get there. Whereas Otis, he's faking it. He still has no clue, as we'll see at the end. So, so we got the Addis Ababa meteorite. You know, we also see some of the relationship they has. So, you know, Miss Tessmacher knows she's going to get abused, but she's staying in the relationship. Now we also see Lex Luthor jumping to some pretty major conclusions. If you have a bit of a science background, you know he's nowhere close to having enough information to figure out that a piece of Krypton will kill Superman, nor is it really reasonable to assume that some of those fragments found their way to Earth. But the story needs it, they put it there, because Superman needed that vulnerability, which was originally introduced in the radio show to give both Collier the chance to take some time off and go on vacation, just have a voice double come in and moan into a, into a microphone. So now we see another part of the plan. Although it wasn't totally formed, you could see when Miss Tessmacher was saying, oh, Superman can't see through lead, she's pointing in one direction, and as we'll see later, the lead is somewhere else. You know, we also see that Otis is faking it. He really doesn't have a clue. He's even starting to realize, are we going to Addis Ababa? And now we cut to the XK-101 rockets. So these are the ones that were mentioned by the newspaper salesman, which Lex Luthor was saying, oh, you know, the government just gave us the chance to do the great, greatest real estate swindle of all time. Here we have a green sedan. Now, Superman 1 and 2 were being filmed simultaneously. That's a lot of what the Sulkines did with their approach. So if you watch Superman 2 closely, you'll see this same green sedan before it gets trashed in one of the sequences, because that one was actually filmed first. In fact, Superman 2 was about three-quarters done by the time this one was released. And now we have another Before There Were Stars kind of cameo here. 
So we see this is how they're gaining access to the rocket. You know, with Nedbedia's Otis trying to hide behind that skimpy little pine tree. Somehow thinking that'll be nonchalant. So, and here's that before they were stars cameo. Larry Hagman came into Alberta for three days of shooting to get this sequence done. This is before Dallas. Um, those of us who grew up in Alberta know the weather can be a little bit unpredictable. His three days of shooting became a month by the time they got it done. And this would have been filmed in the foothills west of Calgary by the looks of it. So now we have Otis inside setting the directional vectors using the notes on his arm. Now, one thing I've always wondered is why the military out here didn't question how quickly this ambulance arrives. But anyway, so Otis is heading out with his tool belt. Quite proud of himself. Catches up with the other two. And this is part of, you know, us seeing the appeal that Miss Tessmacher has, like why, or why she sees appeal in Lex. Um, as they're going through this and Lex verifies that Otis actually did the job and he's actually starting to threaten him with his very long arm, um, we can actually see that she's really looking forward to watching Lex beat the tar out of Otis. So again, it's that attraction to power seems to be what drives her primarily. So, and again, you know, Hackman is delivering it as he's yelling at Otis. And Eve Tessmacher is there getting more and more excited as it's going through, starting to giggle and laugh. You know, nodding and applauding, this is really what she's going for. These were a lot of the earliest scenes filmed. Marlon Brando and Gene Hackman were very much in demand, so their availability schedules had a lot to do with the filming schedules. Uh, anyway, so we see their backup plans are coming in to move the second one. Now Otis has a black eye, presumably from that very long arm. So they're coming up on the Hardy's hauling. Clearly, Otis is not to be trusted. It's Miss Tessmacher doing it this time. And this one is also the the second missile, so we don't have to worry about uh, Lex Luthor being recognized as the ambulance driver. This is another crew. So, and again, Lex is stalling for time. Although it's just. I do question the lack of security over nuclear missiles and the fact that they're even being driven around fully exposed like that. So we get the shots at the dam that's going to be a pretty big part of the later sequences. It also establishes for the audience 
where Jimmy and Lois are. So we already know that Lex Luthor is buying up land. Now we get Lois's interview, asking the guy why she'd sell it to him, asking the chief why he'd sell it to a man that he'd never even met. We get the great Custer line, which, you know, she reacts to as the perfect soundbite again for the interviews. So we know that they're in the area that's being endangered by these rockets. We cut back to the Daily Planet, and we see, you know, Clark coming in again, saying hi to people, including the janitorial staff who's in there cleaning up. That's, again, the kind of guy he is. Everyone's a person. And the first thing he asks about is Lois. Finds out he's got to go see the chief, and he's blocking the set. And again, he cares about people asking Gil about his wife Judy and that sort of thing as he comes into Jackie Cooper's office, or Perry White's office. And again, we've got another long monologue with Jackie Cooper with almost no prep time. So not only does he play the part well, but he's incredibly professional. Right, we get the hints about Lex Luthor buying it up. Here we get the first thing that actually seems like a threat from Lex Luthor to this stage. You know, a report from Addis Ababa about you know people breaking a museum and two people dying. It's the first time we have that Lex Luthor is actually killing people. All we know is that the police want him. Now we get Perry White's pep top. It's, he's trying to turn Clark into a more effective reporter. He sees a lot of potential in him. You get the great humility line. Which again, I mean, it, it seems funny to us, but with that extra scene from the extended scene, we see this is something Superman's actually worried about. Is he not humble enough? Is he letting vanity get to him? And then we get the voiceover. So this is Superman's first introduction to Lex Luthor. Now, this is one of the nice moments for Chris Reeve as an actor. When we're watching this, he reacts to specific words during that monologue, but we have to remember this voiceover that we're hearing isn't happening on set. Only Jackie Cooper's talking. Close up. Superman has things timed, or Chris Reeve has things timed based on how he knows the speech is playing out. It's one of those moments where you need a talented actor that a lot of the audience doesn't recognize because we're hearing things the actor doesn't. We don't recognize it's not there. Now here we have the transformation into Superman with a power that hasn't been seen in the comics where basically his suit changes into the Superman suit just because he wants it to. Even though he doesn't have boots in that moment. And this is a little bit different. We're not getting that sequence at the beginning where everyone's going, you know, who is that? What is it? Is it a bird? Now everyone does know who Superman is. They're rushing to the windows to see him. So we are seeing he is starting to have an impact. We are a great Lex Luthor line. Nobody's perfect. And almost nobody. Now in a lot of these sequences, Superman's suit is a slightly different color than it normally is. Um, they had a hard time figuring out what shade of blue to use in front of the blue screens. Things were turning transparent. There we go. 
go. He drills through the earth. We get people reacting. And again, for the extended edition, we see a little bit of footage. This footage seems more familiar. That was fairly expensive to do. So after it got cut from the theatrical release in number one, we decided to reuse it in number two. Now we see part of the rivalry between Lex and Superman. You know, when Miss Tessmacher is, you know, clearly attracted to Superman as well. You know, Lex pulls out the booby traps, which, as I mentioned, are part of the theatrical release of Superman too. Right, so theatrical release of number one. Even though they've heard the reports, Lex is reacting as though he expected the bullets to have an impact. You can see a little bit of that cockiness from Superman. He's just walking through. Because up to this point, he hasn't been hurt. Nothing has been able to get to him. There have been things like the death of Jonathan Kent that are beyond his power to stop. But that's that's about it. It's not like he's been able... Anyone's really gotten to him to hurt him personally. And that's what we're going to see. The end of a second act in the story is usually the reversal. So this is where things change. We get a position of power, the hero realizes maybe they're not fighting on the wrong side, something along those lines. The reversal in this one, you know, to, to my mind, the way I would set it up, is coming up shortly when Superman realizes he can be hurt. So first he comes in through the third trap. And again, there's a little bit of that arrogance. He just, he's being pounded by the snow. He knows he's going to be fine with it. He doesn't walk to stop this gas pellet that's going to kill people. He just stands there, crosses his arms, and waits for it, because he knows he can take it, and he knows he's got the strength to break out at the end. So again, there's a little bit of showmanship coming through here, and a little bit of the vanity. And again, we see the opposite reactions. When he gets out, Miss Tessmacher smiles. Otis and Lex get more concerned. And now we cut to where the theatrical release starts. After coming down and burrowing through the sidewalk, Superman comes straight to this door and makes a fairly dramatic entrance. And this was actually now the first time we see Superman and Lex Luthor on screen together. It's one of the only scenes that Gene Hackman and Chris Reeve actually filmed together. And we get that nice imposing look as he looks like Superman. I mean, you know, so what if Christopher Reeve had to go around with feminine hygiene products taped to his armpits to keep from sweating through the suit. He does look like he does look the part bang on when it's actually on screen. And you know, as he mentioned to uh, Perry White, he doesn't understand violence in any form. That's a lot of what we have coming up. So we've just seen the launch of the XK-101 missiles where the angle's coming in first. 
We're going to have another cameo, you know, before there were stars style cameo coming up there. As we cut back to Lex Luthor explaining his plan. Now, unlike a lot of villains where the hero gets them to monologue to buy time, this one is actually Lex stalling for time. Because Lex has been able to plan this. Superman didn't even know he existed until Lex got his attention and called him out. Why? So that he could keep Superman busy while the rockets were out there doing their thing. The one piece of information Lex didn't have is exactly how fast Superman is. So now we have the San Andreas Fault conversation, which was homaged very nicely by Superman Family Adventures issue 8. It's the same one I mentioned before where they do a new direction for Superman that I don't think they'll ever be able to do in mainstream continuity, but works very well there. As Lex Luthor explains his plan, which actually is there to finish Lois's story now. Because up to this point, there would have been no way for Lois to know who was out there buying up all that worthless land. That's information that she can now get from Superman to finish that story. And here we get the reaction from Superman. This is the first time we've seen something that's fear. He doesn't have a lot of fear for himself, but he does have fear for other people. Now we get the new map laid out, and if you'll notice on the northern edge, there's the Tessmacher Peaks with two giant mountains. Gee, I wonder what that's referring to. Anyway, so as they're going through, you get the bickering between them again, playing for comic relief as Otisburg is being wiped off the map. And this is where Superman starts to realize this one isn't a hypothetical plan like that gas pellet. We see Otis trying to position himself to look like Superman and blow his chest up. And there's Target Zero on the San Andreas Fault. And here we get that fade into the desert. We see Lois Lane's car driving along. We see Jimmy Olsen. So now we've had it confirmed by Perry White that yes, they're investigating this story. They are in the danger zone. And here we have our XK-101 rockets and our Before They Were Stars cameo for John Ratzenberger, known to Cheers fans as Cliff Clavin. So, which again is another connection that makes me wonder if maybe Harry the Hat was a Superman reference, given that John Ratzenberger was in it. And here we get the, you know, the just a little bit of toss-out dialogue here just explaining why the government can't take care of this and we really need Superman to stop these missiles. The government's built-in defenses don't really work the way they should at this point. They've been tampered with. Now notice Lex kicks Otis out of the room for the final play to try and get Clark to go after the kryptonite. Before Miss Tessmacher comes in, she adjusts her hair. She is looking you know, to try and appeal to Superman and try and impress him. And this is where we find out there's two of them. Or two of the missiles. And Lex starts moving with his reverse psychology. 
He's like, but you with your great speed couldn't stop them both. Right? Because Lex is probably working on the available information. None of them really know how fast Superman is. So he tries to do the reflexive look in that direction to guide Superman that way, looking for the detonator, which doesn't really exist. He even repositions himself over that lead case deliberately to get Superman to open it. So this is all part of his plan to bring Superman to where he's vulnerable and away from the missiles. And there we get the reveal of kryptonite. Now, the kryptonite was described as a glowing green rock on the radio show, and that's a description that went to the comics. The only other time we've seen it on screen uh, is in black and white, and it was described as green in the serials. The TV series, it was actually a rectangular gray, well, just a rectangular gray block. But this, to my mind, is the end of Act 2 and the start of Act 3. This is the reversal. So Superman realizes he can be beaten. Right? There is something that can hurt him. Yeah, plus, people can plan. He cannot conceive of the level of evil and violence that Lex Luthor is capable of. So Lex Luthor is a genuine threat. And Superman has never really seen a genuine threat before. So, we get him dumped into the pool. So. We get another classic line of Luther dialogue where it has that little twist at the end with that we all have our little faults, mine's in California. And things are being set up with Miss Tessmacher. You know. And again, that's that last little push that they need. The misdirected missile is now heading for Hackensack, New Jersey, which is where Miss Tessmacher's mother is. So now what we have coming up is a bit of a problem in terms of continuity editing. Continuity editing in the film world is, you know, what they talk about when they're, you know, moving from shot to shot and scene to scene. A lot of times they do things in multiple takes. So they use a line of dialogue from one take and a different line of dialogue on the same scene from another take after the camera jumps. What we have here are a number of takes where, you know, Superman is in the pool. He's got an air bubble under his cape and it's going to be shifting back and forth. So we see in this first scene where Miss Tessmacher's coming around the corner. Superman addresses her by name. They'd never been introduced. She was just named once. We see a lot of air under the or over the left shoulder. And that cape of his. Now it's the right shoulder. If memory serves in the next shot, there's no air bubble at all. Oh, no, this one's in the left shoulder. It's the other close-up. Where there's no air bubble at all. Right there, there's no air bubble. And then when we come back, the air bubble reappears over the right shoulder. We also see Superman give a little bit away when he talks about Lois and Jimmy. We haven't seen Superman interact with Jimmy that much, although a lot of it's happening in the background. And he makes his promise when the cape shifts again. Now that promise is part of what was changed in the original ending. Um, yeah, In the original ending, he, he does save or stop that missile first, and then 
things happen differently with the second one. But in any event, we have Miss Tessmacher pulling him out. Now you notice the kryptonite is no longer glowing. Uh, it was actually a light bulb in that rock powered with a portable power pack that was hidden under his cape. That worked really well when he was standing on the ground. Didn't work so well in the water. So they just couldn't get it to light up with the special effects of the time. So they just used computers to do it in post. So get rid of the kryptonite and we see Superman start to recover. We also get a bit of a hint from Miss Tessmacher, so we know she's attracted to power, but she also recognizes she keeps going for the wrong guys. You know. Then we get that little reassuring moment from Superman, partly while he's recovering, and probably give her the boost before he leaves. makes that Superman-shaped hole in the ceiling, and off he goes. Another one of the traveling crane shots, and it's... Looking at it now, we see some of the lines. Gotta love the front projection, which was top-end home video projector at the time. It's not that common anymore. But those red, green, and blue bulbs were so hard to keep aligned. Now we see a lot of the, the threats that are building. So we know these missiles are on the way. One of them is heading towards Lois and Jimmy. And the other one's heading for Hackensack, New Jersey, and that's the one that Superman has to deal with first. So, some bad blue screening with those farmers. We see a little more lens flares in the stock footage here, which again, drove Unsworth crazy. It's hard to eliminate it completely, especially when you're pulling from stock footage. Stock footage being, you know, footage others have had, and you just basically pay to use it. So they don't have to go out and shoot it specifically for the movie. You just buy it and superimpose, I guess, Superman and the missile on top of it. But with the bright light of the prop, we do get a little bit of lens flare. And some of that is the anamorphic lenses that were used. Um, so an anamorphic lens is one that compresses the image. So the film itself is still that 4 by 3 ratio we saw in the intro, Mark June 1938. But the lens itself isn't, which is why you notice when it the focus shifts from something in the forefront to something in the background, often things seem to expand or contract, and that's a side effect of the anamorphic lenses. Um, if you've got a movie that's the 16 by 9 instead of the 2.2 or the 2.35 to 1 that a lot of movies are, you don't get that distortion in distance, but you don't get the same width of the screen. So now Superman turns around just in time to see the rocket detonate over the San Andreas Fault. So this is where we get the, the big action sequences, and we have a few more inserts that are exclusive to the extended edition. But we'll go through those as we come to them. Superman's going through the lava to protect the San Andreas Fault. Lois pulls away from the gas station where we heard Super Tramp, which the, was chosen because the name is a slight nod to Superman as well. So Lois is rushing away from the exploding gas station. 
we see a lot of the collapsing power poles we hear the news flash that's announcing the San Andreas Fault is gone and the major earthquake is happening so we see damage tearing apart the Golden Gate Bridge which also included a small scale model And of course you want the audience to care, what do you do? You put a school bus full of kids in danger. Now we have the Hollywood sign, which is exclusive to the extended edition, and also a nice nod to the uh, Earth versus the Flying Saucers. So here you have Girl Guides of the Girl Scouts uh, running away from a collapsing national monument. In Earth versus the Flying Saucers from the 50s, we had the Washington Monument falling on a bunch of Boy Scouts, which was later homaged in Mars Attacks, directed by Tim Burton. We get the first hint that there's issues with the train. And we'll be coming back to this train later. The theatrical edition cut out a lot of these expensive special effects to get Superman out from under the ground and back up to the surface a lot more quickly. I kind of like the idea that it takes him a little more time to stop the San Andreas fault. You know, it's, again, a little more limitation to him. Not much. But just, you know, it's not an immediate solution. He has to get to the right spot. But he does now. We see him sealing up the San Andreas Fault. A little bit of reverse action photography, which apparently wasn't the original plan for this representation, but with time and budget and cost overruns, that's the one they ultimately used, was just running the film backwards. With that done, next stop, Kids on the Bus. It brings them back on board and flies away. And of course, just sealing that, it reduces major earthquakes, but we're still going to have some aftershocks. So now we've got the train coming up. We see the sparks coming off the train, which were an after effect. It actually looks like they were, the white spots were just scored into the film by scraping off the colored enamel. So all we see is the film base. Now, Superman here is apparently more powerful than a locomotive and able to fill in for a load of railroad track. We see the bridge coming apart with Jimmy still on it. A lot of the damage is coming out. Of course, Jimmy shows his worth as a reporter. He's standing there taking the photos because he knows it's news. And that's his goal, is to get the story, more so than to save himself. Which is, it's a nice touch, and it's something that's played up a lot better with Jimmy in later incarnations. But that's the version of Jimmy I like, one who really is a reporter, and not just some kid photographer, and not just, you know, little boy for Superman to be saving but an actual valuable member of the Daily Planet. We see Superman coming in, cutting off the major power. Again, making sure individuals are alright before moving on. You know, the audience knows Jimmy and Lois are in a lot of danger right now. So, we're seeing the dam break, much of which was done in miniature. 
And of course, we know that Lois is probably the most important person to Clark and to Superman, which is why he runs across Jimmy first, leave Lois in danger a little bit longer. So, and now we see a town. Now this this sequence is one of the ones that doesn't quite hold up. And first, Superman leaves Jimmy behind, doesn't even address him by name. Just, you'll be safe here, son, and even changes his tone of voice a little bit, so you can tell he's working to not be recognized, at least by Jimmy. Now, as the dam breaks, it is a miniature sequence, and one of the things that always gets to me about miniature sequences is that, you know, when water is flooding, and when it's crying on its own, and flaying out on its own, you get certain sizes of droplets. And on this scale, you can tell when you're using miniatures and when you're not. So now here's Lois running out of gas, which is something that was foreshadowed when she was trying to get into the gas station a while ago, which is part of the reason she's trapped with the earthquake coming right away. I'm not quite sure why she just stands there screaming instead of trying to get out of the car, but apparently she does. seeing her trapped. Now, she is a bit of a woman of action. She's not just lying in the car screaming. We see her trying to crawl out and calling for help, but with the dirt pouring in, you know, it's just not getting to her. So now we cut back to the floodwaters, which, as I said, on the miniature scale don't quite work out. So we see Superman heading above the floodwaters, but, you know, that's the focus. But watching it, you know, even as a kid, this didn't necessarily look like a town being flooded. To me, this always looked more like a train set getting soaked. Now, Superman's out there causing a very specific avalanche with that boulder. And again, the splash patterns tell us, yeah, these are pebbles. That is a model but he's out there blocking the water flow and stopping the flood. Now, one thing that they never do seem to deal with is the radioactive fallout from having a 500 megaton warhead blow right off the San Andreas Fault close to so many populated areas. But, well, that's kind of out of his hands anyway at least in this incarnation. So, Superman sticks around to make sure that the dam holds. And we see that, for the most part, it does. Now, as he calms down, it's interesting. They didn't quite record the voice on this one. So now Superman can hear Lois see his lips move to say Lois but there's no actual sound next one if it wasn't recorded or if it was always just supposed to be mouthing that line now here's where we see the big differences between the the ending as written and the ending as released we are literally seconds away from the ending the way it was supposed to be written remember the Hackensack missile he just pushed off into space and then came back. 
So in the original ending, Superman arrives in time to pull Lois out, saves her, then we cut to the missile in space, which heads toward that glass plate that had the Phantom Zone prisoners in it. So Zod, Non, and Ursa. The missile blows up in space, breaks that glass plate, Zod yells, freedom, and the three of them fly towards the Earth. Cut to closing credits. Uh, that was changed. Donner felt we needed something a little more spectacular. They didn't need to leave you on a semi-cliffhanger to get you back to number two. Richard Donner felt if we make number one good enough, people just want to come back for number two. So they changed it. Uh, that's what we're seeing here. Superman did not arrive in time to save Lois Lane. Which is in a lot of ways a pretty risky maneuver but they had a backup plan what they did was they took the ending that was originally written for Superman 2 and pushed it forward and used it for Superman 1 which generally is a good plan but it meant it was also late enough in the game that the special effects guys didn't get a clear idea of what they were shooting for and what they're supposed to be representing which is why it, you know, it doesn't quite come across the way it should. We'll get to that part in a moment. So what we have here is, you know, again, there's someone Superman cared a lot about that he couldn't save. This is different than Jonathan Kent, though. This one is not natural causes. This one is 100% a case of him not getting there in time, at least in, in his mind. Anyone else would say... You know, it's largely because Lex Luthor redirected that missile. But that's not the way it is to him. And we get these great fades from scene to scene as he's just over her body and her mourning. We know the impact it has. Uh, we get one of the revealing mistakes here as he stands up and he just screams. You know, he just can't deal with it. He can't accept her loss. We see his back molars that are filled with silver fillings that Superman would never have and couldn't get installed if he wanted them. So, But now we're getting homages back to the beginning. That line, it is forbidden for you to interfere in human history. And Jonathan Kent's words. So these are the people that formed him. Now, just the fact that Jarrell has said it's forbidden for you to interfere in human history now more than once is a big sign that it's possible for Superman to interfere in human history. They keep saying it's forbidden, it's forbidden, it's forbidden, but he does it anyway. And we see him circling the Earth fast enough he's actually leaving light trails behind. And he appears to be reversing the rotation of the Earth. Now, the goal here is actually based partly on particle physics and partly on relativity. As we mentioned earlier, the theory of relativity says that if you travel faster than the speed of light, then you travel backwards in time. That didn't come across very clearly. So this, what the script wanted was for him to travel faster than light. Um, if something travels faster than light within a medium, you get what we call Cherenkov radiation. It's like a sonic boom, for, but for light. It can only happen in a medium. 
you know, nothing can travel faster than light in a vacuum, but one of the side effects of refraction is if light's going through water or if it's going through glass, it is going slower than it goes in a vacuum. And if you have a particle like a neutrino that can travel faster than light, it emits Cherenkov radiation, which is how the Sudbury Neutrino Observatory is able to detect neutrinos by the little light booms of Cherenkov radiation. The goal of this ending is that Superman personally travels faster than light. It looks like the Earth is traveling back in time because Superman is going back in time. And then he comes back, arriving soon enough to save Lois. So in this moment, there's actually two Supermen in the area. So he shows up after the car dies, but before the earthquake comes through, possibly even preventing the earthquake along the way. So while Lois is freaking out, you know, we see him react and say, you know, not even saying anything, just talking to her and going, you know, partly he's been a little busy, but he's just so happy to see her. You know, when he says he's been kind of busy, yeah, Lois gets it, but you could tell she is starting to, to see him as a personal hero. And we get the moment they're about to get together when Jimmy shows up with perfect timing. And this is the first time we really get a feel that Superman and Jimmy have gotten to know each other and their friends as well. Just the way Jimmy talks to him, there's a bit of familiarity. Now there's something Superman has to do. He takes off. And we get that moment, which is mostly for the sake of the audience, where Lois realizes that Clark's never around when Superman is. Now We've never seen a situation on screen in the first movie where that would have been an issue. And I largely think that was a deliberate choice, because as soon as you get that moment where he leaves, it's harder to believe that Superman's successful masquerade is actually successful, that a pair of glasses is enough to throw people off the trail. So, I move to one of the last scenes in the movie. So we hear sirens railing. Now we get Superman bringing Lex Luthor and Otis in. Now, we don't see Miss Tessmacher coming in with them. And it's kind of left ambiguous as to why. Um, so we, here we get the only moment where Lex Luthor appears bald with the skull cap. Um, but yeah, if you watch the deleted scenes, um, we see the fate of Miss Tessmacher. It doesn't work, as, partly because basically Lex kills her without saving her, or without Superman being able to save her. And that's why she's not there. It's not a great ending for her, which is why it probably is better off without them. But that's also why she wasn't in the group that was filmed. Here it looks more like Superman chose to act as judge and jury and release her for her part in this, you know, without, you know, putting her through trial because of her saving him. You get that classic final shot of Superman through space flying away, and cue the closing credits. Now, starting with the production credits, it's an Alexander and Ilya Salkine production. And this time they're not hollow, they're solid letters for the closing credits. 
Richard Donner film as again the directorial credit. So, and then catch the regular credits. Now the union rules over the years keep changing the order of the credits, and over time have changed even how many people get credited. Uh, in the earlier films, you notice the bulk of the credits were at the start of the movie. So the movie ended with maybe one screen of credits and then cut to the trailers, you know, which were the, the ads for the upcoming movies. But as the unions got stronger and stronger and people wanted credit for their efforts so that their names showed up, and it wasn't just the major stars, but also the, the crew as well as the cast, the credits got longer, they started putting a minimal number of credits at the beginning and the bulk of them at the end. So you get movies like Amistad was one of the more famous ones that do not have credits at the beginning, they actually got fined. So Steven Spielberg just paid a fine for not putting credits at the beginning of the movie. There's supposed to be some key credits at the beginning, and the bulk of them are now at the end. Uh, that's also why trailers shifted from following the films to the beginning, because they found people were not sitting through the credits for all these cast and crew, because aside from those major credits that show up at the beginning, most people just don't care. So trailers are called trailers because they used to trail after the film. Now they're at the beginning because that's the only way for people to see what's basically the ads for what's coming next. So we see units for USA and Canada and a lot of the trainees. As well as the continuity editors and the other continuity people. Now, continuity is fairly hard to obtain, not just because props move from take to take, but also because in cases like this, scripts are being rewritten while the film is in production. So you've already shot a scene that happens at the end of the movie, you rewrite a scene in the beginning or in the beginning or the middle of the movie, you have to make sure that you're rewriting it in a way that's still consistent with the end. So there's a few movies that you know this doesn't really work in. Uh, one of the ones we're going to be talking about next year in the big screen Batman series is Batman on Robin with George Clooney and Chris O'Donnell. That one, it's quite clear how much rewrites the script went through when you'll notice the whole cast is wearing one set of outfits, then they change to different outfits, and then the entire cast goes back to the same outfits they were wearing originally because those two scenes are supposed to be part of the same scene. One of the rewrites put a couple days time-lapse between them and changed the order. So now we're seeing the art directors, the draftsmen, the set decoration, the illustrators, the modelers, the starship design. Uh, one of the changes between the extended edition is towards the tail end of the credits. In the initial release, the credits end advertising Superman 2 as coming up next year. That was taken out of the extended edition release. Partly because, well, Superman 2 is already out. And I wonder if it's also partly because it took more than a year to get there. There's a bit of a story that we'll get into in next month's podcast. Uh, talking about what was going on you know, behind the scenes after the first movie was finished. But as we're running through these, yeah, we've got the hairdressers, the chief electrics at Pinewood. Uh, Pinewood Studios being one of the major studios in England where this was largely filmed. We see the stunt coordinators right down to Canada. 
the mat supervisors, the optical liaisons, the flying effects. At the time, this seven-minute closing credit sequence was one of the longest in history, and it actually cost more than a lot of movies did to start to finish, just to make. Uh, these days, it doesn't seem that long. Some of them are up to 13 or 14 minutes, and they tend to have a lot more names in the visual effects crew for a movie like Superman. And now we're getting to the cast credits, which these days are one of the first sets of credits that we see. So we see the baby Kal-El of Lee Quigley, baby Clark Kent of Aaron Smolinski is the one that shows up again in August's podcast. It's yeah for those who are familiar with Superman three, he's actually uh, the little boy in the photo booth at the beginning. Right, and we get a lot of the cast. So there's Michael Ensign as the newscaster. There's Larry Hagman. There's John Ratzenberger. Uh, the Roy warden of Roy Stevens is one of the final credits in the original. So here we have the lyrics by. Leslie Bricuse for Can You Read My Mind, which, as I said, was originally intended to be sung, but it turns out she just wasn't up to the task of singing effectively, which is why it was re-recorded. So here's our standard legalese, and then filmed in Panavision and processed by Technicolor. So Panavision is one of the anamorphic film formats. Cinemascope is the other one. Panavision tends to have a 2.2 to 1 ratio, where CinemaScope is 2.35 to 1, meaning, you know, if the screen is, you know, one yard high, it's 2.35 yards wide, at least in those proportions. And after those product placement credits, we've got the produce, production thanking credits, Canadian Pacific Railways, based upon the character Superman appearing in comics and magazines published by DC Comics. So at this point, it had been renamed from National and All-American Comics. They combined taken DC Comics, short for Detective Comics. So it's Detective Comics Comics. It's the number one seller at the time was Detective, starring Batman. You got the location credits. Now, as I said, in the original theatrical release, after the International Film Production Incorporated picture, it comes up with next year, Superman 2, which, as we said, was stripped off this version. There's the production and distribution, and now it fades to another 20 seconds, talking about the film restoration and the sound editor's sound design. A lot of restoration was needed to bring in these extra scenes because they hadn't been used for the home video releases or anything like that. They had to be cleaned up, because up to this point, they were literally just sitting in a vault somewhere. But at any rate... That wraps up the commentary track for Superman the Movie Extended Edition. And I will thank you for joining us. Um, now this is being released in two parts, as you're probably already aware. Uh, each time a podcast comes up, I like to talk about what's going on behind the scenes and how the film got made, why those people were involved. I like to talk about the impact it had on the Superman mythos, and I like to talk about the quality of the production itself. This is focused mostly on the quality of production. There's a lot more behind-the-scenes stuff, which is coming out in the second part of the podcast, which is also being released today.
So, yeah, please listen to both parts. And then join us again next month as we discuss Superman 2.